Welcome to the Unapologetically Successful podcast. Today we have with us Brody Neal. We are in London interviewing Brody right at the showroom and his office where he designs and manufactures world-class sustainable furniture. His furniture is sought after by national galleries, museums, artists and successful people globally. He has won a number of global exhibitions and at a very young age has been able to be compared to people like Philip Stark and others as the leading designer of furniture. The uniqueness of his furniture is not only the beautiful shape and the quality of material, but the fact that it's always a sustainable material that he sorts after through his interest in providing a way how to harness and how to look after our environment, as well as make sure that our landfill doesn't build up. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to have you here and to be discussing this all and what you just explained as the intro there's a lot to unpack there but but yeah I guess it's all quite interconnected really and it started off in Tasmania as a a young very creative and inquisitive child and curious about how things are made and how to create with your own hands and be quite resourceful and it's just led on from there like one step after the other just upping the game as you go learning like self teaching in a way each of those stepping stones to to build a career from there you had an incredible story that you actually mentioned to me before and when you say unpack what i have noticed is that you really drive quality and passion why don't you share with us the story and the journey you had with l'oreal your Mm. job i thought it was such a beautiful story this was my time in the United States where I did my master's at the Rhode Island School of Design. This is the early 2000s and upon graduation I was offered this job to be to work in New York in Manhattan to work for L'Oreal Corporation all the brands that they represent. It was quite intriguing. I knew it was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life but it was going to be a good opportunity to get in there straight out of art school get a paycheck move to manhattan all these things sounds great got there the level of design was not or or let's say the creativity was not as cutting edge as what i was not expecting but used to or or had in my Uh hoping it was commercial and but there are traits there are a business acrement that i learned in that time that I still carry through now and I share with my team and I distill across our kind of operation. The learnings were quite more, maybe more in business and more in operation, a certain discipline that was there that L'Oreal gave me. But yeah, the design work was not of a high standard. It was very it was across a lot of the different brands a lot of the ideas that i was putting forward were always shot down they were just too too blue sky let's say and i remember the the design the head of the design department she sat me down and she just goes brody i don't think you understand what design is and i was just like pretty shocked at that i knew in myself i knew exactly where you wanted to go i had built the early stages of my career i had traveled from tasmania i'd done my time in the united states i'd won awards along the way and accolades etc so i knew my trajectory yeah Yeah. there was i guess it was a bit of a turning point 
So you left fairly quickly after that. Well, I always, I actually always had plans, even within my, let's say, scheduled holiday allowance, to actually take a small collection. I think it was about six pieces, basically from my graduation or the works that I created shortly after, which was an extremely fertile time to all of a sudden have all these ideas that you manifested through thesis research, etc., to then all of a sudden have the time to to implement them in more of a kind of the early stages of a professional practice, to take these pieces, which were all produced in, in New York and New England and area, and actually take them to the United States, uh, sorry, to, to Milan, to the Young Designers Platform, yeah, exhibition there called the Salon Satellite, exhibited them there. And that's when I met so many kind of talent scouts, design directors, yeah, so industrialists, etc. So that was really the turning point. That was the introduction. That was, that was definitely a kind of icebreaker there and an eye opener. But that was just a foot in the door. And I'm always one to think, obviously, if you kind of get that foot in the door, then you've got to make the most of it. And so the opportunity was I met a gentleman by the name of Gregorio Spinney who had started this lighting company called Kundalini, which was quite avant-garde. And they really put it out there, stuff. And it was all about the like the Kundalini, Kundalini Yoga, about the kind of the inner, energy. The inner energy and the aura of light and all this. So you imagine if you almost take that as a brief and to give that kind of furniture form, that was where his brand came from. So I went away with this. I went back to the United States where I was living at the time I, and I just lived and breathed it. This was my opportunity. I had to make this happen. And a year later, because obviously it's annual event, yep. a year later they celebrated I can't remember if it was 10 or 15 years of their exhibition with, let's say, 10, 10 lights that they had commissioned by famous design. You had Zaha Did, you had Norman Foster, yeah. you had, I can't remember, absolutely all of them. And then there was Brody Neal. And I was like 22, 23 amazing. or something like that. So that was an amazing opportunity to have my name up beside those, to be elbow to elbow with the greats. And then it was the following year after that, then pushed that further and designed the Eternity Etern bench, which has really which become a signature that, that, that kind of... Did really put you on a map. Yeah, it was a real kind of coming of age. And so that was a, a whole year later, but still, I went away. That kind of, that first show gave me the confidence to really explore my own ideas and to really find my own kind of voice within this industry and say, hey, there's something out there. Which is absolutely amazing. And then what I also really love about when you when we spoke earlier is you say it just comes to you and it's inside you to design and then it's somehow you work it within your, I don't know, energy or yeah. what it is. Can you talk about that? The ideas are extremely you know, instinctive. You, you, you don't know when they're going to come. It's not design that's a process of, let's say, iteration. Of course, there's a lot of refinement. Everything is meticulously researched and developed on from a technical point of view. But the real essence, the real magic of the idea is in that first spontaneous moment of... of a very instinctive, I don't know, creative response. 
and you get this idea a lot of this, what if a chair was made from a continuous loop, a spiral that was interwoven? And then even if it was, how, where would you even start to, to create that? Where would you even start to draw that? That's sometimes one of the confusing things is to how do you sketch it? Because then you have to be able to sketch it to then be able to communicate it to your peers, to, to, to the workshop that's going to make it, to the client that's hopefully going to acquire it. And yeah, so you have to start all of these processes. And then over the years, we've adapted many technical tools from hyper-realization renders to, to all the CAD tools and so on. But these are just the things that are at your fingertips. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, coming back to the tools and the design, there is also something very special about your particular furniture, um, which is the sustainable aspect mm -hmm. of it. Where did that come from and how did that start? And how do you follow and how do you still grow that and search and I've just looked at a particular piece of furniture which is going to be a bench that you source the material from a very particular period and it, the journey of every single furniture is actually a whole there is a whole story to it like near, nearly a poem written yeah. with it no of course I was every design is basically it's a, almost like a thesis project within itself. It's like a PhD of research. There is the starting point. There is the transformation of that. When working with reclaimed materials, it's I often talk about the reincarnation of what that material was before and what it is now. And there's many examples which we can get into. But the essence of where that all comes from is really my Tasmanian upbringing and being... I grew up in Hobart in the city, but you are. You're surrounded by nature. It's everywhere. You're on the water. I went to art school down at the docks, and every day you walk past these amazing vessels and boats. There's this, all this inspiration there. Boat building, fine craftsmanship, all of these things that are that, that you're influenced from. And my training as well was was in the traditional joinery. And when you're standing there at the workbench and you've got a piece of wood in front of you and you're looking at it it's a beautiful specimen it's a beautiful thing it's taken millennia to grow there's quite a responsibility for the designer and the craftsperson to to put to turn that into something to to celebrate that and to turn it into something that's valuable that is so amazing but you design not only from wood you actually yeah. specifically source materials that a lot of people would not be sourcing. You use a lot of recycled materials. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that example was obviously a, a long time ago, but it's still the same approach, really. It's still the same. What can you do with the material? How can you adapt or adopt a technology or a process from a different industry, from a parallel kind of discipline? And then, I don't know, mess with it and be experimental. Coming all the way forward, to today or the, the last five or six years we've done a lot of work with ocean plastic and that was that stems from a lot of work working with other recycled materials so getting a bit of a knowledge of I don't know the trials and tribulations of recycling it's a bit of a myth unfortunately but like working with these materials and understanding how they behave and then all of a sudden seeing the potential in something and unfortunately spotting the potential in something that is quite hideous unfortunately it was on a trip 
back to Tasmania in 2015, I was there as a kind of design camp symposium with the National Gallery of Victoria. I was on the island of Bruni Island in the southern part of Tasmania. Very remote place and an area I used to frequent as a child with my family. And here I was on this beach that my boyhood memory would remember as this pristine coastline. But there's plastic. And it was like like McDonald's straws and toothbrushes. I've got photos of it. it d- detergent bottles and all these types of things. And I'm thinking, like, uh, you know, I'm not a naive person. I've travelled the world and, yeah. and I've been swimming in yeah. Bali and Malaysia and the Mediterranean and all these places. Ocean plastic exists. It's there. But I didn't expect it in Tasmania. I didn't expect it. In your home. In my home. And that's when it really hit home. And I thought, shit, something's got to be done. And I picked up those pieces and I thought, here's a material that's been made from fossil fuels. It's been excavated and refined and transported across the world. It's been turned into this plastic object, which was probably disposable, used for a few seconds wrongfully disposed, found its way into the environment, and here it is decaying on the beach. And it's going to take thousands of years to disappear, if at all. But here's the material. Because it was designed initially to be indestructible, then how can that go back to a circular economy, a circular system, and be turned back into something that you know is useful, back into a material use? And that's kick-started this whole kind of series of ocean plastic pieces where we make this terrazzo material from millions of fragments of ocean plastic. And it was in, it was about six months later, I left that coastline, I came back to London, it was in the back of my mind, I was like, we've got to do something. And then the opportunity came to represent Australia at the London Design Biennale in 2016 here here in London at Somerset House and I thought to myself how better than Australia the world's largest island to take the leading role in the stewardship of the of the oceans and literally present the global issue of ocean plastic in the round table of this design forum now this was a time we're going back 2015, 2016, that ocean plastic was not really on everybody's mind. It was there, it was a massive problem, but it wasn't, people were not really that aware of it. But they would not expect it from Australia. No, uh, but this plastic had come from everywhere. Everywhere, of course. So I had also, I, I had then, my first kind of port of call, collaborated with the Australian High Commission here, reached out to the National Gallery of Victoria to help with the curation of the exhibition since I was with them when the idea kind of spawned and also the University of Tasmania where I did my undergrad which is two fields of expertise there is is design in wood and also marine biology. We collaborated with a number of marine biologists and oceanographers to really map out this issue of ocean plastic around the world. It's travel, it's effects where it really congregates and so on. And nowadays, we work with an international network of people and beach combers and we collect a lot of it from the Pacific, a lot of it from Tasmania, here in the UK and everywhere. Amazing. Now, I was also going to speak to you. So it's not only about finding plastic or working with recycling houses, if you like, or 
But what was amazing was there is a piece of furniture in your showroom that you have sourced from an old building here in London. And what was very surprising, and not in a sort of negative way, but your knowledge about the history of when which type of wood was being shipped to which continents Mm -hmm. and understanding what building era was using what type of materials was that how does that come is that just a (laughs) a passion yeah it's a passion to dive deep and to really understand everything that you're working with or everything that you're representing and that goes with every project yeah like the ocean plastic work for example resulted in me presenting my research in Brussels to the European Union and then we were invited to go to the United Nations and we presented it to the Oceans Conference. So it really takes you well beyond the time studio and you become a spokesperson for these issues. But I guess it just comes back to that resourcefulness and maybe that's a very Australian slash Tasmanian thing to and also back to the workbench when you're looking at that piece of wood it's, or you're looking at the plastic that you're picking up from the beach it's like there's a responsibility here and what are you going to do and it's then then breaking that down and understanding the full picture trial and error etc and then putting it out there and of course like with the ocean plastic the result was quite a spectacular mosaic over half a million pieces this blue and white black table that kind of depicts the ocean it's got the lines of longitude and latitude of the world in it it's ended up being acquired by (laughs) museums and and private collectors as well and it's it's kick-started a whole series of pieces but then to be able to lock that material away in something that is not only archival but also educational. There were over a million people that went to visit that table when it was on show at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne. And then when I used to take friends, family, journalists to see it, I would have to line up because there were so many children that were encircling it, learning about the ocean, plastic in the ocean and sketching and drawing and so on. So there's this whole educational side of things about it as well. And I guess what it also does is every piece of furniture then has a story and an energy and an ability like the table itself actually tells a story plus then there is you can entertain for weeks just on how the table came where the table came from the number of people and countries that it touched yeah of course yeah the where it's traveled what those pieces used to be and that's before it even got to our hands and the transformation for what we do is still quite great but yeah, it's, it's... it's fabulous. <laughs> now, coming back to being unapologetic, the theory, and we spoke about this before, is people who become successful, they don't apologize because they know exactly how they got to where they got to. But your success and your, what do you see? Like when I say unapologetic, how do you feel about who you are? I don't think I need to be feel apologetic because obviously... And this probably goes with a lot of people you interview would be that there's been a hell of a lot of hard graft there. It's like you've got to go through the trenches to, to get to where you are. And and it's just it's taken a lot of passion, a lot of hard work, a lot of belief, even in the hard times. But you, yeah, you trust yourself. So 
You mentioned the one thing, which is a lot of belief and being and believing and being positive, which is one of the big traits of actually successful people. What was your, if you look at your sort of journey, and now we're stepping into the accolades and the success, your, the pieces of furniture you've designed, your work is in museums, art galleries, around the world. And we can go and list those as well, but how, was it an accident? Was it a, how does one become that big in such a short period of time? I guess I was, I've always been fascinated to push myself, challenge myself in new areas. And I'm also fascinated by cultures and process, customs, the way people do things, collaboration as well. This doesn't all happen by myself. We've got to talk to plastic recyclers and furniture makers and collectors and restore and construction people. Whatever the expertise is needed to collaborate with on each project yeah no it's a lot of I don't know nurturing and negotiation the one thing that it's I'm so glad we actually spoke before even though I was worried that we would lose the the momentum yeah, of the, the and the energy and the magic <laughs> but I don't think that's possible with no. you Brody <laughs> I was going to mention when you speak about what how the piece or how the design comes you say that it comes from within and it suddenly appears and often you don't even know how are you going to actually construct the piece of furniture so that it's it can be stable and whatever else it's needed? What's the process in your head that you just go, we'll just make this work? You've got a great team that works mm-hmm. with you, but take us through the journey of actually going through that. The idea, the initial idea, as I keep on saying, is quite spontaneous. And that, I, I don't know where that comes from. It, it bubbles up from deep inside. It It appears, maybe not, in my imagination that is, not maybe in its entirety. It needs to be fleshed out. It needs to be refined. You almost need to you almost need to get to know it. You can almost put these personalities into these kind of objects. And sometimes you could be walking down the street and you get an idea. You see something. Don't know what it is. It could be really mundane thing that could spark that idea. But by the time you've got to the next set of traffic lights, you're thinking, oh shit. I know who's going to make it. I know where we're going to do it. I know what we're going to do. Who, I, where, this is going to be this exhibition. There's going to be this. You could have it all planned out. It just your mind runs at a million miles an hour, and it just connects those. And they are such magic moments. And unfortunately, they don't happen when you're sitting down at your desk with pen and paper. They happen when you're, you know, yeah, at least expected in the shower, <laughs> anywhere, and but then some of them you just let them kind of percolate. Uh, and then they can come out or if you have a conversation with somebody and it's something that you may have parked you can bring that up give it some fresh impetus and some enthusiasm and then take it from there but it is a very responsive kind of thing you and, have an and yeah and i'd love to i'd love to know how to make it happen and i think it it's the kind of thing that just needs space and time for that to happen and it's something i keep on saying to my team that if you take away all the, I don't know, all the running of the business, all the kind of admin, all that kind of side of things, and then if it just allow me to literally daydream, and then that is when that kind of the magic, magic happens. Because happens. I think as a child, I was a very, I was a very good daydreamer. Yeah, so it's the dream. <laughs> so they do say that creativity is actually part of 
creativity is actually part of being successful because you do need to have that mind and connection to yeah. something I call it. They're the best ideas. I think the ones that are just so instinctive and then you f- almost feel a little bit uncomfortable about them. You, you think, that's a bit crazy. No, just don't do that. That's not possible. How's that going to happen? And it's the ones, it's a bit like, it's a bit like the eternity bench sheet, creating yep. this bench sheet all from a single Mobius strip piece, never done before. So you form a, so when you show that, when that goes up on its stage, its platform for its exhibition, you got some butterflies in the in, in the stomach because you're just like shit. I don't know how this is gonna go because there's no there's no precursor. Yeah, there's no precursor. There's no. It's not like you've just done another chair yep. in another way. You've turned it on its head literally and twisted it inside out but and it's those moments and they i tell you what they come back and pay you tenfold because the world sees that the people see that, the audience sees that and they respond talking about this eternity seat you won an award for the Mm -hmm. seat and you were very young but it was also a moment where your name was right next to philip stark's name and you must have felt i'm flying I just <laughs> yeah, I guess you got to pinch yourself at that stage. Yeah, that was that, that was a, a big moment, and then obviously that that all of a sudden yeah, the press knew you, the industry knew you, the audience knew you, and so on. And it yeah, it was a fantastic arrival. Now, which is so fabulous. And now coming back to, are you more interested, or would you like to have more work? in museums or would you like to be more known as a used type of furniture in by families or private homes like what's your drive where would you like to is this more an art or is this a functional we have it was 10 years ago that decided to split my attention or split your kind of your kind of output creative output into two directions the limited edition the gallery editions that kind of heavy research laden projects real kind of blue chip concepts and then on the other side this more refined unlimited batch production that you could realize projects like what you're saying you chairs around the table restaurants (laughs) so 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 for listeners you i'm sure you get to see them we can actually put some photos around but the chairs are so beautiful and so comfortable and the elegance that you are able to produce with yeah. the material and the style and the design and yet provide a comfort it's well yeah thank you so i think that that was the alpha chair which is part of the collection i set up 10 years ago called made in ratio which is all fascinated about the the perfect golden ratio that's found in nature. You think of the formation of shells, even the proportions of our own bodies and how we interact with the natural world and also the man-made world. So that fascinates me on that deeper level that we keep talking about. So I created this collection called Made in Ratio where everything takes into that, per- the idea of the perfect proportion of form and function and design, and material, craftsmanship, etc. And there's the Alpha Chair, which was designed as this very sinuous, biomorphic kind of sculpture that is all seamlessly engineered in wood. So it's got this gorgeous tactility to it. 
But to everybody's surprise is when you actually sit on it, it's extremely comfortable. So comfortable. It was quite ergonomic yeah. in, in, in its way. You, well, you think the human body, think of all of our, the curves of our bones and, and the shapes of, that the we are, shapes that have been perfected over millennia of through evolution. That's, I'm not, yeah, that's it's, almost the levels of refinement that you've put into these, to, to these chairs. It's incredible. And where would you like to, looking at future, next 10 years, where do you see Brody Neal to be in the next 10 years? Or you don't think beyond? I, I do think of myself very much in the moment. I get very, I don't know, occupied by what is, what's that creative project that's right, right here, right now. But as the kind of the career and the profile becomes more complex, of course, we've, we're planning exhibitions two or three years ahead kind of thing, our agenda. But in 10 years, for example, I'd love to, I'd love for the studio to grow into a, an atelier, to be a real destination where you can do a lot of experimentation because I think that's where a lot of, a lot of those butterfly moments can come yeah. from and really just, just push the boundaries more and more. Are you able to share with us the next project? The next projects are coming up thick and fast because we have the Made in Ratio collection I mentioned celebrates its 10-year anniversary in Milan next month, uh, which is the big annual yep. design festival there. So that's 10 years of Made in Ratio, so we're going to have 10. Uh, Made in Ratio has had a lot of success with chairs and yep. seating like the alpha chair yep. carriage chair, etc so we're going to show 10 examples of seating and for the first time in milan we're also going to show some of the limited edition pieces as well but so that's going to be a big a big presentation and then after that we have during london craft week we have an open studio where we'll get a real taste for uh, welcoming people in, showing that kind of behind the scenes processes, kind of work in progress kind of thing, with a little exhibition called Turning Tables, which is basically turning ma materials <laughs> into. In, into gorgeous tables, basically. And would you like to... So right now, all of the design is happening with you and you are the brain behind all of that. Are you going to take any students or any interns to help you? We do from time to time. They, a lot of them kind of contact us. I often think of myself when I was when I was their age as well and how important it is to see how things work. I don't really imagine that my studio is the perfect. It's a very beautiful space. It is, it it's is a be very it's a great, great space to work. But it might not be the most uh, the perfect business model, but it works for us. Yeah. But, but people can come in and they and it's an open plan studio, so they see everything. They yeah. see the whole running of the business and an idea of where it might start to the rigorous kind of functionality that makes it bring it into completion. Now it's hard on podcast to talk about it, but I would like to describe a fire pit seating mm -hmm. arrangement that you have designed. And I really encourage everyone to have a look at it yeah. on the internet. It is the most elegant and I would say modern yet really, it's sophisticated, but it's really simple. Refined. Refined <laughs> is the word for it. How did you come up with that idea? What was, I really would like 
it, it's like you come in, like I, let's describe it, you come in and you're actually coming in, sit down next to a fireplace that has these beautiful curves and creates illusion that forget the fireplace, you are part of the artwork that you have created. What was your thinking when you were designing this? there was the space it was for a, it's for a project here in london for a friend a, a fr- a, an old friend who's become a client and commissioned a number of pieces and he, he was a bit stumped on what to do with his garden i'm not a garden designer i've never really had much interest in it but he was a challenge and a challenge maybe that coincided with one of these spontaneous ideas and just so imagine if you used the sunken aspect of this space and almost had it like it was this continuation of the floor almost like liquid kind of rising up like a mountain range and it's liquid yeah and it's got this kind of very sinuous kind of shape to it so basically that's what creates this kind of seamless kind of thing and then within that it has its recesses for foliage and plants and greenery and then it's got its seats areas it's got steps in there and it goes down to this kind of fire pit so do you see that some of the pieces of artwork that you create i call them artwork furniture could become mass mass production at some stage some of them i think that when you've got something like that for example it's so special so unique so site specific as well i think it's probably it's important to kind of keep it just as that just for the one person in London. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, but there are other pieces as well. Like, why why put a cap on it? Why? I think it's important within your creative offering to have quite a wide, I don't know, architecture where you can have access points at different levels. If there is somebody that wants to commission something that is super special, complete one-off, unique, then there is that. But if somebody would like more of an entry-level item, then that's so available I, there too. We spoke about this. Pierre Cardin mm-hmm. has yeah, done yeah. exactly that. Yeah. So he created, he does have the unique, sort of very beautiful couture, as well as he's offering the more general public to be be- still beautifully dressed mm-hmm. at, at a price point that they can afford. Yeah, that's something that I definitely a kind of an analogy that I make with my Made in Ratio collection yeah. and also the limited editions which kind of go under my name, Brody Neal. So it is more kind of ready to wear versus whole couture. Yeah, which is amazing. I still would like us to go to and spend a little bit of time about the museums and art gallery. Mm-hmm. Some of the pieces could be found. Can we talk about that? Sure. And also how do you see it must be something really spectacular go i go into this museum or into this art gallery and there is my piece of what i've created like that feeling deep inside you can you go into share with us what's inside oh, brody's yeah. heart and head i remember as a child going to museums you'd go with your school you go with your parents i was very fortunate to grow up in a very creative family like i'm one of five children i three older sisters who and my sister's a milliner and there's a lot of creativity in the family but not just as practitioners but it was just it was supported i used to go to a lot of exhibitions with my mum just local painters and sculptors ceramicists but you were exposed to that you saw that this was the arena this was this is where if you were a professional artist or designer this is where your work 
goes to. This, so is, this, see, this is part of the job. <laughs> but did you see yourself as a child that one day you will be there? Yeah. Maybe not that clear. I didn't walk into the gallery as that was my aspiration. I want to be the next person here. But I think that I think that what has been quite interesting in the development as well is that that my time in Tasmania and learning design through a very sculptural, expressive, well crafted kind of manner, that then going to not so much the United States, but more I don't know more that kind of industrial design, let's say Milanese, Italian kind of side of things, that things get streamlined, things get... There's a pathway. Yeah, lack of a better word, dumbed down a little bit for industry, for simplified. And really, I'm always there trying to enrich, you know, where others are trying to cut corners to get the, to streamline something for production. That, there was a turning point where I really was like, hang on, we really want to celebrate these objects. We want to make them as sensational as possible and then have them be in these kind of galleries. And then once I admitted that to myself, then there was a, I don't know, there was a familiar, comfortable feeling. Kind of feeling. That's where I belong and that's where my work belongs. Amazing. And your children, when they come with you to an art gallery. <laughs> yes. And I yeah. go, Daddy. Yes, they do. Yeah. That must be like, because end of the day, the biggest joy we get is when we make our children yeah. happy and, I guess, proud. Yeah. So, wouldn't My children pick up plastic from the beaches. They pick it up from the streets and the footpaths, and they're always giving it to me. And they're saying, oh, what could you do with that? Oh, could you put that into a table? Could you put that into this? So when they walk into a gallery and they see it, they're like, oh, which one did we work on, Daddy? Which one Which one did I help make? And then, of course, you just... All of them. All of them, all of them, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, yeah, and they come to the studio. They're surrounded by it. They see that process. Of course, huge. Which is really amazing. Huge. No, and Fleur's experience in sustainability and passion towards it is a huge influence and support. I'll go now on to the private clients, and you don't need to answer, but... You have designed some pieces to a very famous and very successful people. And is there any observation that you could share on what would be the experience of actually designing for someone who themselves have achieved and then the expectation of what you're actually delivering to them? I guess some of these people who are successful in their in their fields i guess it's a bit of an honor they're they're acknowledging work of a high caliber in uh, of something that they need i admire their work and obviously their careers and their kind of profiles that they've built so it's it is an honor it's an honor to be part of their lives yeah, and really, that person is sitting at my chair. Or yeah, at my table, table yeah, exactly. Using my, I think that would be quite a sort of warm feeling. Mm-hmm. No, it is, and you, you can't always guess it. Sometimes they're commissions, sometimes they're bought through galleries or through interior designers, architects, etc. Yeah. What about mistakes? Are there any mistakes that, or is there anything that you regret? <sighs> oh. Maybe I've been, I don't know, dogged and determined that I've turned any anything, any regret into a positive. But I guess there's been a few over the, over the years. Or maybe you can try and be 
diligent enough to be able to identify them before they really become a big issue. But I'm uh, saying if you fail fast. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I'm not too scared to deal with things. If things need to change or change tact, then, yeah, I'm happy to spin on the spot and do it. Oh, it's a gut instinct. You've got to make the call and you've got to do it. So there is that. But, yeah, there have been a few projects that have not worked and here and there but for the most part and they haven't been the last question is going to be you are staying in london you love living what's your favorite coming from australia what is the best part about living in london there's, there's many great parts but i think that i am fortunate to go back to australia once or twice a year visit family i've got a lot of work going on out there but yeah, when you come back to London, you, when you land land at Heathrow and you're making your way back, you do you do feel home. Like of course, I've got multiple homes, but but then it's where really you feel right. I'm still inspired by London, and and I think that it's endless. It's, it's there's such a creative energy here, and it's it's actually what drew me to London in the first place. I was living in I was living in New York and traveling to Milan a lot because of my relationship with Kundalini and others others in northern Italy. And every time I would travel via London, stay with some friends, and I was just like, wow, this is amazing. From the fashion to the architecture to the... The yeah, the energy. Like I a, only arrived a few hours ago, right? Yeah. And I'm still smiling. I'm still high. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow. And then I felt that. And, and don't get me wrong, New York is a great place. It's got its energy and Milan is too. But it's just London just has it. It's just all year round, 24-7. And I moved here in 2005. Yeah. And I think that creatively, those first... That, that, that response, bedding down, designing those first, whatever, first 18 months of work was just some of the most, fer yeah, fertile, cr crazy. I think it's the size and the energy and yeah. also the central location of being in, the, in Europe. It's not, but it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing. Like, you've got amazing technologies and makers and collaborators all on your, you know, your yeah fingertips doorstep like not just in london around the uk but of course across europe as well fabulous thank you so much thank you for interview and an experience and uh, we are looking forward to the next unapologetically successful interview all the best and speak soon